Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Thanks for all the kind words about our new look for season two. Keep the messages coming. I'm at Ian Andrews DC, or you can hit us on at Chainalysis, either X or LinkedIn. Institutional investment is often said to be the key to broader adoption of digital assets. I wonder how far away from that future we really are, and what might be missing from the current blockchain protocol and tools landscape that's keeping traditional financial institutions on the sidelines. This week, I have the opportunity to speak with Kyle Downey. He's the CEO and co-founder of Cloudwall and his team is building what they hope is the world's most sophisticated digital asset risk platform. They call it Serenity. Kyle spent nearly two decades at Morgan Stanley building a variety of advanced systems before launching Cloudwall. So he has a special perspective on what institutions really need to get into digital assets. He emphasizes the need for better trading infrastructure, serious risk management tools, and we talk quite a bit about the gaps in privacy that are likely keeping some big players away from DeFi. Now, two things before we jump in. First, if you're a new listener to this podcast, you might want to check out our recent Crypto Basics blog series. The most recent blog is titled The Importance of Blockchain Security. As the blockchain ecosystem continues to mature, so do the tactics used by cyber criminals. And in the blog, we explain vulnerabilities and exploits commonly encountered in the crypto space, explore protective measures, and take a look at the promising future of on-chain security. As usual, find the link to the blog in the show notes. And second, remember that while we dive deep into investment risk practices on this episode, please folks, our podcasts are for informational purposes only and are not intended to provide legal, tax, financial, or investment advice. Listeners should consult their own advisors before making these types of decisions. This week, I have the founder and CEO of Cloudwall, Kyle Downey. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show, Ian. I'm really excited about this conversation. I'm super excited to dive into the technology that your company's building. I think it's it's an area we really haven't gotten into on the show related to how institutional in- investors think about risk management across their crypto portfolio. But before we go there, I think I'm always interested in how people got into crypto. You worked at Morgan Stanley for nearly two decades. You know, In your last role, you were managing director. Talk a little bit about your career there and, and what led you into the world of digital assets. So it goes back a decade on the crypto side. So in the middle of the 17 years that I spent at Morgan Stanley, I spent seven years out in Asia, three years in Shanghai and four years in Hong Kong. And that actually ends up dovetailing to the story of Cloudwall a little bit later on. But at the time in Hong Kong, I remember stumbling across a a news article South China Morning Post, I think, that was referencing a Bitcoin mine in Kowloon, so relatively near our home. And I remember thinking, why is what is Bitcoin and why are they mining it? I had not heard of this at all. So this was a couple of years in uh, already in, in 2013. I Googled it and I started reading the white paper and I was utterly fascinated by it, by, by this idea. And then I started looking at what was going on in the trading side. And the thing that just came to me relatively early on was it seemed like people were using these internet technologies to rebuild a lot of things that were very familiar to me in my day job. And it was day traders and retail and all this, but they were building exchanges and they had free market data and it it rhymed a lot with the institutional side. And I started to wonder, you know, is the day going to come where the things that I was doing at Morgan Stanley and what was going on in crypto were going to converge. So, you know, over that long period of time, that was kind of always in the back of my 
my head. Like, when is that moment that that is really going to take off and what triggers it? Because at the time, this was not obvious, right? In 2013, this is the time of Mount Gox. People may not know this, but Mount Gox stood for Magic the Gathering Online Exchange. So people were trading Bitcoin on a trading card website. You know, it really was a joke. Bitcoin was a joke before Dogecoin was a joke. And then it really took off and suddenly it wasn't a joke any longer. But it wasn't really obvious that like institutional traders would touch this thing at all. And you had a lot of those scandals around use on the dark web and Silk Road and all of that that were really dominating. But still, like from a technologist's point of view, so at the time I was working on equities and equity derivatives e-trading technology, which was, that was the latter part of my career. Uh, and that kind of final role that I was in when I left MS. So we were building market making and hedging and liquidity provision systems for MS traders. So when I was in Hong Kong facing off with the equity derivatives desk, and it just struck me, despite all the weirdness of it, how similar it was to like what was going on, you know, on one floor below me, well, from where I was sitting in IT. And for a long while, just, okay, this is cool. This is interesting. I was trading uh, myself. I built some automated trading tools along the way. I was writing about it at one point. I'm, I'm curious what the reaction of your Morgan Stanley colleagues was. Like, did you come into work and say, hey guys, have you heard about this Bitcoin thing? Like, did anybody react? Absolutely. You get a real reaction when you resign to do it. But <laughs> but the people knew because like they saw my writing, they were aware I talked about it. I had a very senior quant sit me down and basically say, this is utterly without value. What are you doing? You know, I had conversations with compliance along the way of like, because obviously when you're working at a big bank, there are rules around like outside personal trading. And so trying to do the right thing. Hey, I'm doing this. Yeah. Is this okay? And they're like, yeah, don't worry about it. Like, you know, this has nothing to do with what we do. And like, it was, it was the point where I asked several times, like, are you sure? I'm yeah. FINRA registered. Yeah. Like, is this okay? The really interesting thing, of course, is that when it kind of gets out that you're interested in, the, in this sort of thing, like people will kind of come up to you like, hey. I'm trading this too. You know, it's just, it's just, that, like, they were all that was totally my experience as well. When I took the job here at Chainalysis, all of a sudden people that I thought I knew well and had known for long periods of time came up to me and go, Ian, you're getting to work in crypto? I've been trading Bitcoin since you know, 2014 or I got into Ether in the ICO and or I've had mining rigs in my basement for the last five years. Yeah. And I had... Absolutely no idea. It was a very underground movement within a circle of you know technology people that I knew who consciously kind of chose to not mention it casually at work. Yeah, exactly. Out on the trading floor, like both quants and traders, like there were multiple people who were doing it nights and weekends for fun who, who got into it. I heard people at other hedge funds that were sort of like running PA crypto accounts. And yeah, on the tech side, you know, after I left, I found another managing director who had like a whole fan cooled set of Dogecoin rigs in his basement at one point. He's, he's sort of like a mini Doge father. You know, and I was doing it too. Like my daughter and I built an Ethereum GPU rig at one point in the early days of Ethereum that was running for a while until all the cards burned out. And so people were kind of doing it as just this hobbyist thing. And then, you know, around, I would say acutely during the pandemic, but probably around 2019 or so, just things started popping up. This is like the first announcements around GS setting up a trading desk, which they kind 
kind of stopped and then they started again. And it was starting to come into the light and people were starting to take it a lot more seriously as a product for institutional trading. And of course, then the space races ahead again and you have the summer of DeFi and that's well beyond what most people on the institutional side had any tolerance for. They were still like the safe space was still Bitcoin and Ethereum and things like that. Yeah. But, you know, I remember the survey that GS did of like some of their family office clients and just being startled by the numbers, not just on the number who were actually already through mostly indirect vehicles invested in crypto, but the ones who had it on their roadmap for the next year that they were already talking about it. And so you have that too, that there's like this generational shift where there's a lot more interest with the millennials and Gen Z that was starting to come into Wall Street because they were starting to take jobs. So, uh, but still like leaving in 2021, I got a lot of like, why are you doing this? My co-founder got it probably even more. You're ruining your career. You've been here for 17 years. Now you're doing this crazy small thing. I, I had one very senior MD tell me flat out, yeah, I would have never guessed that you would do this sort of thing. <laughs> so I think for the, those of us who kind of like did that transition, like it, it was easier than it was a couple of years before, but there was still a lot of, are you sure you want to be associated with this? Like, is there reputational risk yeah. around it? And a lot of that was outdated. And I mean, Chainalysis, you guys have done reports on this. Like a lot of the headlines don't take into account the growth of the overall ecosystem. And they're still kind of quoting numbers of hacks and activity in the dark web on chain and not recognizing that the percentage keeps going down uh, over That's time. Right. So in many ways, some of those people, those views are a, lit, a bit outdated. They're pointing to things that were real, but not necessarily dominant anymore. Amazing. You made a comment earlier about how when you first got into the space, you looked around and you saw that people were recreating a lot of the systems that already existed inside of institutions like yeah. Morgan Stanley. I'm curious, like, what's your perspective now in the fall of, of 2023? Like, where are we on that progression of kind of rebuilding the infrastructure that supports traditional finance, if you will, inside of the crypto ecosystem? We're, and there's a degree of self-interest in this statement and that I'm-, I'm uh, You're absolutely building part of it, so- so of course I'm going to come yeah. out and say we're not spending enough on it, but we're not spending enough on it. The, the tools for institutional traders are not suitable yet for the people who are going to be coming in 2024 and 2025. I do believe we're behind the eight ball in terms of infrastructure investment in the space. And that's across the board. So that's trading and custody and data. I've had portfolio managers from like large traditional hedge funds say to me flat out, not a single vendor, and, and they work with like series B and above large vendors, is institutional grade, not one. So for those of us who kind of came out of this space and have that standard, Standard, you know, you see things happening and say, like, this would be utterly unacceptable at a large institution. And I'm not talking about fraud or anything like that. I, I'm talking about just how you operate and the resilience and reliability of the systems and all that. We're still really investing a fraction of what Wall Street is investing overall. So there's, there's that problem first. The second thing yeah. is I feel like in some cases we have reproduced things that we should not have reproduced. 
in terms oh, of creating centralized infrastructure, in terms of repeating mistakes, in terms of large opaque OTC markets with not very good automation around them. So we've created a lot of systemic risk in the space by not looking to some of the strengths of the technologies that this is built on and reimagining it. I hope that one of the values of people coming to the space who have that background, but are also passionate about the opportunities and actually using this as a chance to reinvent, will do more than just say like, let's take NASDAQ, but put Bitcoin on it. We can do better than that. And I think even the traditional exchanges, they know that too. They're looking at ways to like reimagine their businesses by incorporating this technology. And that I think we haven't done enough of. And, you know, PM that I respect in the space, uh, head of a, one of the early digital asset funds, one of the things she said is part of the problem has been the start and stop, the kind of boom bust cycle within crypto. As people get into it, they start building, they start to build infrastructure, and then they get wiped out. And then we do it again. Like there, there needs to be a little bit more of a long-term commitment to actually invest in this. And I hope that financial services industry as a whole sees it as an opportunity to like redo systems from the 70s and earlier in a much, much better way. And you know, because ultimately crypto is not the only application of this. Like I firmly believe there's there's going to be widespread tokenization of traditional assets as well. And this is going to have huge implications for asset managers. So like we kind of have to solve this for everything, not just for crypto anyway. And if that is the case, we are massively underinvested right now in the space. When you bring up the large and opaque OTC markets, what's the alternative to that? Like, what's the right way to do it? Is it all on some sort of DeFi type platform where it's in the open? So I think the ultimate destination is via DeFi protocols. I think the more general principle is that a lot of this has to be manifested on chain. The kind of two big problems with that. The, the first is capital efficiency. So if people are doing like large OTC options deals, they're not going to over collateralize that. Like, like they, it kind of, there's no point. The DeFi option protocols, just they don't have the capacity to absorb those really big deals. And they just don't make economic sense for someone which is why the OTC market exists. But this the second issue is that that whole mechanism of having bilateral trades, it doesn't work with a fully transparent blockchain. That's kind of the other issue right now. So, you know, one of my side interests is privacy pres preserving technologies on blockchain, particularly ones that allow for selective disclosure, because there are certain financial use cases where full transparency doesn't work and full obscurity doesn't work. You need something in the middle. And the OTC market is a great example of that. Like you and your counterparty both need to see the details of the deal. You don't want your competitors to see the details of the deal. But to assess overall systemic risk, you may wish to have high level summaries of what's going on in the market visible to other parties, to auditors, to perhaps regulators. There are wonderful examples of this from early stages of my career. Uh, I worked on credit derivatives back office technology with you know pre-financial crisis, what was being done to try to get a handle on the fixed income derivatives market, particularly CDS, where you know they wanted to have a central view of the net exposure across the street because it was going through fax machines, like it was just not visible. And so that's a really good example, I think, of something that could be done better on blockchain, but maybe the technology is not entirely there yet. And so we're in this kind of transitional phase where, quite frankly, like 
I'm like, have I been teleported back to 2004? Like, you're seriously <laughs> negotiating this deal on Telegram and then emailing a PDF summary of the deal terms, and then you have a bunch of operations people try to make sure nobody made any mistakes. That we're doing that in crypto in 2023 is horrifying to me. There are better ways to do that. But it's kind of a case of Tina. Like, there's no good alternative to it right now that kind of meets those requirements of confidentiality and capital efficiency. Do you think firms like your previous employer, do they have the appetite to actually try and go rebuild some of the infrastructure around or on top of blockchain technology? And I know they have incredible, incredible technology budgets, like the spend at Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan is measured in billions of dollars That's annually. Right. So there's capacity, but it it's always seemed to me like, you know, we still run most payment systems on mainframes at the end of the day. So like like you said, 1970s technology predominates when you dig deep enough under the, the covers. I mean, obviously, I, I can't, particularly several years out, I can't speak for where they are now. What I can say is like for projects that JP and others have spoken about publicly, there is a lot of engagement and there's a lot of interest both on the DLT side and the crypto side. The DLT side is easier to move ahead because it doesn't have the regulatory constraints. Uh, and so to the extent that it doesn't maybe move as quickly, it's more like just typical budget prioritization, whatever. So I've seen a lot of companies starting to move out of the, what I would call the innovation lab phase, where they were kind of stuck for a couple of years. It's like blockchain was kind of alongside quantum computing. Like you would say, hey, we're doing all this cool stuff. We're doing blockchain. We're doing quantum. We're doing all this big data stuff. Please come work for us rather than going to work for Google. Like that was kind yeah. of the play for a while. And blockchain was kind of trapped in that. But I think you know, if you look at some of the original sins of, of, of financial IT systems, like one of the big ones is reconciliation. It's having multiple masters, multiple copies. I, I cannot tell you how many systems had these issues that I've seen over the years where they just had copies of copies of copies of data. And then, of course, you know, someone comes in and they're an internal audit function, a regular or whoever, and they're like, this number in this financial report, where did it come from? It's like, <laughs> well, kind of awkward. <laughs> it went through like 15 different Sybase databases and a person touched it manually over here. And we've got all these scripts roped together that, yeah, we're fairly sure the number's right. This is architecturally not great. And people recognize this. They know this. Like pushes toward central databases, you know, taking, you know, Goldman as an example. One of the great powers of SecDB, you know, their sort of master risk database was having it all in one place that, you know, they could run those reports, they could run those analyses from a single single central reliable system. And a lot of, so this is well before, you know, talk of DLT, a lot of the banks looked at that and built equivalent systems. You know, BAML has one, JP has one, MS has, they, they all like looked at that and said, you know, we want that. That is, you know, that is an improvement. And of course, the opportunity with uh, distributed ledgers is, well, why make copies at all? What, what if the copying yeah. mechanism is built into the protocol and then everyone has reference to a single source of truth? That fundamental concept of having that and you tie it to settlement, that is huge for finance. This is a legitimately very big deal. And there's lots of people who understand that. Like, it's not just the crazy people who left to go do crypto who get that. People internally get that and they are building and it does seem like there's some momentum around it. And we'll see it going on two tracks. There's what people are doing yeah. to renovate systems 
and leveraging the technology. Uh, and that may be private blockchains, that may be public, it may be hybrids. And then you have the, our clients are interested in trading crypto, and thus we need to renovate systems to be able to handle these new assets as well. And so we generally look more at the latter in cloud wallets. Like, yeah. how do you apply yeah. and get those same functions that an institutional asset manager or trader needs on this novel set of, of assets? That's incredibly encouraging to hear that that momentum exists inside those organizations because it's not an overnight change to, to any of the complex technology that runs big financial institutions, right? It won't, it'll take years, if not decades, to fully plow into the architecture. Yeah. I think it's a great segue. Let, let's talk a little bit about what you're building at Cloudwall. Maybe maybe sketch the big picture for folks, and then we can we can zoom into the details. Sure. My co-founder is Jai Nguy, uh, and so we uh, started in the fall of 2021. And the first stage of the startup uh, was really kind of looking at the opportunity space. And so we kind of looked at our backgrounds. She's from Capital Markets Operations. Uh, she's head of FX Asia Operations and based in Shanghai when my family was there. So that was the personal connection. And you know, when we were kind of doing that look across the space, it's like data regulatory risk, KYC, AML type problems, custody, execution. So my background was like e-trading technology. And we looked at it, it's like, actually, there's a lot of people doing pretty good things for like algorithmic trading and smart order routers and things like that. And it just kind of running through the list of the institutional stack. And then it's like, okay, so who's doing risk? Why is nobody doing risk? <laughs> it's like, this is <laughs> fundamental to finance. Like, why is there no BARA yeah. or risk metrics or Moody's analytics? Where are all of these risk vendors from traditional finance and crypto? You know, and people ask me when we were fundraising, like, because of course, when you come up to somebody and say, there's this complete area of white space, like we're going to build a company. You know, the first question they'll ask you is, is it's because you're the only one stupid enough to go after it? Like that this white space exists? Or is that, have you actually identified a legitimate opportunity? And, you know, what we told people is you have to look at the difference between a day trader and an institutional trader. Day traders think in terms of price. Institutional traders think in terms of risk. Who were making the running in the early days of Bitcoin and, and crypto overall? It was the day traders. This is just not the model that's used for kind of reasoning about investments. So, you know, our thesis really was, well, the mix is changing in terms of people coming into crypto. It's going to be people who think about risk first, not about price, who are coming into this space. And this gap will be filled sooner or later. So we pitched to build a risk management platform for digital assets. And that became the Serenity platform, which was spent over a year and a half building, currently out in production. The focus of the current platform is listed instruments, so CFI, not DeFi, spot and derivatives, so spot, futures, perpetuals, and options, with a focus on market risk. But our view is that actually a portfolio manager in the space ultimately is going to have to have an integrated view of multiple dimensions of risk, that they're going to have to be looking at their market risk, their liquidity risk, their operational slash smart contract risk, their credit risk. And so there's actually a lot that needs to be built to like understand the risk of a crypto portfolio. We also took the view very early on that tokenization was over a decade timeframe going to be a massive trend in asset management. So we always framed Serenity as a digital asset risk management system. It's not a crypto risk management system. We have decided to enter the market with crypto hedge funds and crypto asset managers, but the system was designed and all of its data models do not assume that the underlier is 
crypto. The underlier might be a bond or a money market fund or an equity or a piece of real estate. That was very important from the early days to recognize that for this to really work, you actually need to handle anything tokenized, not just crypto. But crypto is the big problem right now for the people who are actually have risk on their books. And so that's where, where we began. This is amazing because I think the big theme of 2022, as we saw you know, multiple firms collapse, kind of starting with, with the Terra Luna ecosystem and running all the way through until FTX and Alameda shut down at the end of the year, was nobody's looking at counterparty risk. Yes. Like there was no visibility of the kind of intertwined nature of loans and leverage across the ecosystem. And I think it was then confounded a little bit by the fact that you had a lot of naive retail investors who didn't actually understand where the return that they were getting was coming from, like what the nature of the underlying investments um, that some of the firms were making. But but I'm curious, like had your firm maybe started back in 2019, pre-pandemic when you had the idea, could this have potentially averted some of those crises or at least made better informed decisions for the people that were honest operators? Because there was, there was a layer of fraud happening here as well that I, yeah. I think maybe is out of scope. We talked about this a lot and I made the point, one of the nice things about our risk tools is you can run them back in time. So I, I showed people what uh, an FTX linked portfolio looked like a week before the CZ tweet and a week after the CZ tweet to make the point that like risk systems do not catch fraud. There was yeah. zero, nothing showed in that. There, there were a couple of people who found interesting things on chain around the time of the Coindesk report. That was probably the only way to really see that coming, unless you had insights, operational insights, that you'd done proper due diligence on FTX, which some had done. Unfortunately, like Taylor Swift did better due diligence than, you know, some other people. It seems. <laughs> Apparently but, so. Yeah. But, you know, some people did ask questions and get answers that they were not comfortable with. But a lot of this just it wasn't visible. And, you know, to the point earlier about the OTC market, a lot of those a lot of those loans were bilateral. There was a lot of exposure with OTC derivatives as well on the option side that people could not see. And there was a true climate of fear post Terra Luna, Celsius, etc., about counterparty risk. And we actually did a survey with Acuity in the spring of 23 and asked people to rank risks and counterparty risk came up number one. That was the one where people were putting a lot of risk investment right after FTX was trying to get a handle on it. And the issue with counterparty risk, kind of going back to that earlier point and why I kind of have that side interest in selective disclosure of information is it's a disclosure problem rather than a modeling problem. I know people got super excited about, oh, don't worry, you can put all of your crypto on our exchange because we have proof, proof of reserves. And it's like, okay, great. Yes, you know that it's there. There's this general idea, like there's a difference between you have assets and you're solvent. And, and so it's, it's sort of yeah. like, hey, I will show you half of my balance sheet. How do you feel about your counterparty risk? It's not good enough. You, you actually need to represent financials on chain. You yeah. need to have secure ways of auditing those, putting attestations on chain. Like there's a lot that just hasn't been built to do that. And so as a risk vendor, I don't want to overpromise. Like if we have the data and we have the models, we have the people who can build systems that will solve that. 
but the disclosure wasn't there in 2019, 2020, 2021. We could have been yeah. just as hammered out of all of that having built Serenity earlier. Would you have gotten a sense through things like value at risk and stress testing and all the other tools we've built of what is the worst that could happen? Yeah, that would have helped maybe people would have positioned themselves a little bit better. And just one last thing, I feel I have to like restore the honor of those retail investors because I'm sorry, the guys at 3AC were not like these sort of, oh, we've never heard of finance before guys. And they were doing spectacularly stupid things with leverage. So, yeah. so it was the, the institutional players were making some really poor decisions, particularly around leverage and, and counterparty risk there. But to be fair, for a lot of the players, you know, the, a lot of the people were talking to right now, they just didn't have the information. They didn't know what was going on under the hood. But rounds of amplification of leverage on stake ETH and things like that that guys were doing with the Genesis trading desk, like this was almost due to explode in their faces. And that I would say is more about risk culture than risk tools. Like I think for people who have who've been in those spaces and have been through a couple of cycles, those scars usually lead them to be a little bit more careful. Um, yeah. In fairness to the 3AC guys, if you look at their professional histories, they started on Wall Street right after the great financial crisis. It always went up into the right for those guys. They, they never actually saw bad times until it was spectacularly bad. And that's the importance of having history and experience in the space. I think that's such a widespread problem, right? I mean, the, the industry has attracted a younger generation that that just hasn't seen that broadly. You know, I, obviously I'm sure we could find exceptions, but I, I'm curious. So, okay, let's take counterparty risk out of it. What are the things that you were describing Serenity to a potential client? What does it do incredibly well? What am I, what am I getting by adopting the platform? There's a couple of things. So our focus so far has been on market risk. And the strength is definitely sort of quantitative risk models that are sort of backward looking. So I would say we have the best implementation of those sorts of models out there right now. And we offer the ability to run multiple models and get different views on it. So, you know, some of the classic tools that like an equities trader would just expect to have in terms of being able to run a factor risk analysis on, uh, on a Delta One portfolio, the ability to price and run risk slides on options and option strategies. Probably most importantly for crypto, the ability to stress test. Like one of the things that Serenity can do is you can replay the 2020 COVID crash on your portfolio today and actually get an attribution of the shock PL basically see where did the losses come from in the portfolio if that were to happen again tomorrow. You know, this is a space that, you know, is rife with hundred year events and black swans and all that. So a lot of people who do think very seriously about risk management in the space, they think in terms of scenario analysis, stress testing, which post financial crisis, there's a lot more focus on the traditional side on those methods as well. We look a lot at what happens under the extremes, whether it's with conditional VAR analysis or stress testing. What we probably do less well is looking ahead into the future, more predictive risk. This is something that we're looking at. This is where I think on-chain really comes into its own. Like you really need that information to be more predictive in this space. And that's something that, you know, in the future we'll 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 definitely be incorporating into the models. But we wanted to get solid traditional historical risk models in place and build all the infrastructure around it before we went out in, you know, to the things that are truly novel in terms of risk models. 
One of the things that you and I talked about when we first met was my perception that most assets and markets in crypto have some amount of, I would say, manipulation that don't exist maybe in the traditional like equities yeah. market sense, just because there's not the rules and the regulations and the oversight and the compliance. Like trade surveillance is just really not a thing. I mean, there's a couple of companies trying to do it, obviously, but it's not widely adopted. There's nobody who's looking or expecting trade surveillance. So companies who are attempting to try and use that technology or doing it of their own own volition. Yeah. So does that quantitative modeling and back testing and stress testing, do those tactics still work in crypto? Like when I think about something like Dogecoin that is so sentiment driven, like an Elon Musk tweet is the biggest market moving activity. Like, does it still apply? And you had a fantastic answer when we talked about this before. I'd, I'd love for you to dive into this here. Specifically on Dogecoin, there's been some academic research into risk factors already uh, in the last couple of yeah. years. And one of them was doing an analysis across the crypto market that incorporated Doge. They ended up saying, well, one of the factors in the model, we call it the Doge factor, because the only thing that explains Doge is Doge. Like, it's just, <laughs> sorry, like there's, it is unique. Yeah. And it has elements of sentiment and crowd behavior and all of that that just don't apply to the rest of the universe. And models often have to correct for that. Like if you have these truly idiosyncratic instruments, you want to make sure they're not sort of like steering the model in the wrong direction. I do believe that eventually we will need, in the same way that we'll need submodels for stable coins, which kind of have some unique risk attributes. We probably should have risk models for meme coins that incorporate on-chain data and sentiment data and social media and all of that. I actually don't think it's a joke. Like I, I actually think that there is a different financial behavior there, which whether you agree with it or not, can potentially be modeled and understood. And so if you're playing in that space, you probably do want to have, you know, a submodel that that handles that use case. The first point I'd like to challenge just a little bit more, because this is a common answer that I get when I talk to people, I say, hey, we've got a risk system. And sometimes the answer is, well, everything in crypto is event driven. There's no conclusions that you can draw from history. It is all, it springs from the forehead of CZ and, you know, a crash happens. And like, this is not true. It is, it is not true at all. And there is at this point enough data, particularly if you're looking at high resolution data, that you can actually use some of these models. There are some types of tokens they won't work as well for. There are some that they'll work better for. But just saying like, well, there's no point in doing this because there's no information. I think at this point, there's enough evidence from academic research, from things that we've done, that there are things that you can do to better understand what could happen at the extremes. It probably still will not perfectly capture it. And yes, there there are events, there are manipulation in the space. I mean, the most recent Bitcoin flash crash, we were doing a, a deep dive over the weekend, actually, combination on-chain and looking at some other things and just conversations with people within the industry, trying to kind of piece apart, like, what happened? What was the triggering event? People, I think, had a good explanation for what happened after the trigger, but a lot of doubts and speculation about what actually set it off. But the reality is, it's not like traditional finance is entirely without manipulation. I mean, LIBOR was not that long ago. Uh, <laughs> and the monitoring tools and the surveillance are maybe not as robust. And you have 
offshore exchanges that are out of reach that are potentially sending price signals, whether you're on them or not. So the trigger of the collapse uh, appears to have been on OKX last week. But when you get these cascading liquidations, like people just start seeing that happen on one exchange, they start doing it on other exchanges. So even if you have a well-behaved exchange, if you've got a big enough one that isn't putting those protections and surveillance in place, it could still send price signals elsewhere in the market that people respond to. I think that's going to be a problem for a while, but this is a really good example of there are tools that have been built. There's history around what is needed. There's history around good regulatory frameworks for it. And it is important. And I think people often undervalue this one, uh, the degree to which like having trustworthy benchmark prices is important for big financial products. Like the reason we don't have a spot ETF is fundamentally about trade surveillance. It, it's not about Gary Gensler hitting crypto. And so if right. that gets cracked and BlackRock has an interesting proposal for, for cracking that particular issue, that might open things up. But like regulators really care about people being able to like trigger a derivatives contract by moving things a little bit. And so they're a little uncomfortable with the fact that like, you know, you can bump an Oracle hard enough and, you know, you can suddenly get all of these wonderful consequences that are profitable. And so we, we definitely need more work there, but we at least know what needs to be built. It's, it's not something coming out of nowhere. I'm really curious about your uh, almost two years in since launch, I think. And it's obviously been a turbulent kind of market experience during that period. Yep. What's been the response from the, the customer side as they start to see your technology? Is it actually kind of sparking more institutional adoption? I would have to I would have to say people probably look at Serenity and they're like, oh, thank goodness this exists. So I think it's a little bit early for that still. The fairly universal reaction has been this is really needed and I haven't seen anything else like this. So that's a good sign. But the asset managers are recovering as well. And you have the larger ones who are maybe more resourced who would go into it, but they're looking at what's been happening in the US on the regulatory side, particularly in the spring of 23, and saying, well, maybe not this year. So they get it, yeah. but they're not there yet. The smaller guys were very badly damaged last year. And so whatever the interest, uh, you know, maybe a little bit slow coming into it, but we've seen a remarkable number of emerging managers come into the space post Terra Luna, post FTX. So there's the fund formation rate is actually quite healthy. People are coming in and they're setting up and the profiles that I'm seeing are people with pretty amazing traditional hedge fund backgrounds who've decided, hey, I'm going to leave Greenwich and you know I'm going to start a crypto fund. It's a very different profile from the early days of crypto asset management. So the challenge that they're facing where we think we can help perhaps a bit over the longer term is getting assets under management. And that means going to more risk-averse investors who are doing robust due diligence of the fund. And one of the questions they're asking is, what is your risk management strategy? What tools are you using? What independent verification do you have of your strategies? And so really what we're kind of putting in front of potential clients is, this is your answer. This is the thing that you can go to a more traditional family office that's more risk averse and say like, look, we're coming with all this experience from, I don't know, commodities or equities or whatever TMT investment in Greenwich 
advantage, and we're bringing in institutional grade tools. And so we can reassure you that we have a handle on the risk here, and thus we can take that larger check to build up AUMs. So you know we're we're really hoping to help here. Like the industry is massively undersized at the moment relative to the interest, and I do think part of why it's undersized is the people who could be allocating who might have the capacity to do it are reluctant due to the risk concerns. And we hope that we can address that and you know really bring more patient capital into the space so it can grow. I think there's a lot of people cheering for that that outcome, more capital into the space. We talked a little bit about DeFi earlier and you talk about that is the one of the big open questions from a regulatory perspective, even in the EU where where Mika is kind of like driving the forefront of I think reasonable crypto regulation, they punted on DeFi as a topic until the next iteration of that framework. What's your perspective? Like where should DeFi regulation go? It's a really timely question with Tornado Cash, right? But there are there there were, including from multilateral organizations, some thinking from the regulators about how to handle this issue, which really boils down to when is coding a crime? And there's a lot of people, including me, who are really uncomfortable with the idea that having written something and putting it on GitHub, that this brings in a lot of regulatory accountability. But once you get to a point where you're operating a platform and supporting it, and there's a real organization around it and you're profiting from it, which is essentially the case in Tornado Cash that they're trying to make, I do believe it's a spectrum and there comes a point where, yeah, it's not as decentralized as you think. There truly are accountable people who you could ask to like control these things. And the element of fear in the industry is it's really unclear where that line lies. Yep. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of some of the frameworks that have been uh, put forward, like from Hester Pierce, where there's this idea of almost uh, a gradation where at a certain point in the early days of the project, you have a particular sandbox set up. Singapore has done this really well as well. The UK too. It's, it's a nice model of basically saying like, if something is small enough that it can cannot do systemic damage and the relative impact within the market is not that big, we should allow a space for experiments to be conducted, but we should have a transition where when it gets to a certain size, a heavier weight set of rules apply. And one of the struggles we're facing, I would say more generally, not just around DeFi in crypto right now, is the one size fits all problem. Like trying to apply securities law to something that has some securities like elements that definitely could like prompt attention on the regulatory side, but has lots of other elements that are not securities like, and that doesn't necessarily have a structure that's conducive to doing the, the necessary disclosures and filings and you know, trading on the regulated exchanges, et cetera, there has to be some middle ground. And so I like that approach of dialing up the oversight based on the level of risk. I think there's a good principle for risk management and risk mitigation that it really should be proportional to the damage that could be done rather than one size fits all. Now, the problem with DeFi is people are playing around on the KYC AML solutions with whitelisting, etc. I think there's some really interesting and potentially more scalable ideas that could help solve that. But talking to people in the market, that's the one that stops them. 
it's like, I've got a commercial bank account at Chase, and they're going to shut it down if they think I'm commingling funds with North Korea. And if I cannot give a solid answer about who else is in that pool, they're just going to assume that I'm doing something wrong. And they do have a responsibility. Like, if those funds are transferred through the fund admin and they end up in a pool, like, someone has to be held to account if actually that is used in violation of some of these laws. I'm not a big fan of the ways people have been doing it so far. I also don't like the fact that a lot of these solutions tend to be one-offs. But I do think we will come to a point where there will be a broadly recognized token that sits in people's wallets that contracts can recognize and say, oh, this person has been KYC'd and they were signed off by this person, thus they're allowed in. Like, I don't, I don't think whitelisting scales. I don't think issuing your own ticket that you passed KYC AML scales. You really need the equivalent of what Vitalik calls a soulbound token for an organization that recognizes that. And there's a lot of interesting technical work going on right now that helps make that not totally break privacy concerns. I'm a big fan of like healthy balances, like not all the way to like just totally ban it, but the free for all probably is not workable at scale either. So what can we do in the middle? And I think when you see that, you will see a lot more institutional interest in DeFi. Like I, my personal take is that 10 years from now, it is gonna be the dominant mode. You're gonna see a lot of peer-to-peer -peer across the buy side through DeFi that never transit through a prime broker or a sell-side institution. That is the true Napster moment for finance once that starts happening. And that is potentially very appealing to a lot of people in the market for that to happen if it allows for greater efficiency, greater transparency, etc. The tech isn't quite there yet. The standards aren't there yet. Yeah. It will happen. I think you're hitting on the key point that comes up frequently on this podcast, which is this balance between anonymity and privacy. Yes. Like we, because blockchain as first conceived with, with Bitcoin was a hundred percent transparent, we said, oh, well, privacy is like a derivative of the fact that it's anonymous. And obviously, you know, through technology like Chainalysis and others, yeah. we, we've shown that the anonymity is not really there, but nobody actually wants anonymity. I mean, not, not legitimate actors, right. Criminals clearly do, but like institutional participants don't, they want privacy. And, and I think retail also wants privacy, but the, the anonymity I think is where we run into trouble here. And so we're now having to like rebuild that layer on top of the fully open and transparent protocol that gives us a reasonable amount of privacy that allows my personal information to be protected, but an institutional trading strategy to be protected as well. Like it's great to say, oh, I'm, I'm legitimate and I'm trustworthy and I'm not North Korean hackers here's my soulbound token proving it, even if you don't know my actual identity. But now that that token's there and I can see your wallet, I've now unearthed potentially your entire trading strategy as well, yeah. which is probably undesirable. So I think there's two steps there which are necessary to advance advance the pace. I want to wrap with last question. Like what should guests who are, are interested in the tech and curious about what you're building, like what's coming next? Where do you see this going for the company? I think you've got a big release coming up here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. 
We aim to be super agile. This release is going to be, I believe, release number 27 since our initial launch, uh, July 1st, 2022. So it's constantly changing. There's always new stuff like coming for Serenity. So right after Labor Day, we're adding Arbitrum and Optimism support. And the biggest thing that we're adding, and both of these are driven by client requests. We try to be very, very responsive to that, is a whole portfolio analytics suite. So ability to take any crypto portfolio and get your standard performance statistics, what they sometimes call a tear sheet, summary of how that portfolio has performed relative to benchmarks, as well as doing some more advanced uh, performance attribution within the portfolio. This is something that we're going to be adding to substantially in the fall. And lots of other small improvements on the performance side, the usability side. We have a number of people who spent many years working with institutional traders who are quite passionate about usability. So, you know, sometimes the improvements, they're not like really big new features. They're just things that make it a little bit easier, a little bit faster to do that job. And and so we have some things coming along those lines as well. And yeah, and then a lot more ahead. I mean, the vision is for really a multi-year project to kind of get to where we think it needs to be, but trying to get there an iteration at a time, just constantly improving it because it's needed now. So we're trying to get the best available with current technology out there as quickly as we can. Exciting. I'm certainly going to be watching along. Kyle, this conversation was terrific. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me on the show. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team has been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, do me a favor. Take out your phone, head to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube, sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter, and of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis on any of those platforms. The complete 2023 crypto adoption report is almost ready to be released. Last week, we published the subsection on Central, Northern, and Western Europe. In that blog, we covered how traditional finance has been broadening their horizons with DeFi and Web3 experimentation. Our statistics showed the region accounted for 17.6% of global transaction volume between July of 2022 and June of 23 and received an estimated $1 trillion in on-chain value during the same time period. To see all the charts, graphs, and stats, head to the link in the show notes to read the full blog post.